All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125, which is on page 657, if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we provide underneath the chair in front of you. Psalm 125, as we continue our fourth summer in the Psalms. If you're a guest or new with us, every other year for the last several years we've been uh, working our way through the Psalms. It's um, a sermon series that will take about 25 years to complete, but we're on the road. (laughs) We're on the way. And um, we've been jumping around a bit, and we've been this summer camping out in these songs of ascent. And so we're at Psalm 125. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you and we praise you for the grace and glory that you have revealed to us through your word and your spirit. And most of all, in the person and work of your Son, our King, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time now, that as we look at this psalm, you would fix our eyes on Christ, that you would shape us, form us more into his image. Help us to understand the depths of the beauty of the gospel. And we pray that you would excite us and equip us to continue to seek to make disciples here in Orlando and around the world. And so we just give this time to you and ask for your blessing upon it and the powerful work of your spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's uh, graduation time, right? There's probably a number of people here who are graduating from high school, uh, maybe from college, maybe from grad school. And uh, if you are graduating, you might be interested in a study that was done by the Pew Research Center not terribly long ago. And that study asked the question, if you could pick, would you rather pursue a job that offers a high salary but low stability or a lower salary but high stability? So... I'll put that to you. Which one would you choose? High salary but low stability or high stability but low salary? Which would it be? Now, what I can tell you is that twice as many people, uh, according to the survey, would choose a high stability over a lower salary or over a higher salary. They would rather have stability than a high salary. And so if you are like most people, then that's probably what you would choose as well. And uh, now, if you can have a high salary and high stability, you go for it, okay? You get that. That's, that's wonderful. But isn't it interesting that there's that reality that, that people do long for a sense of stability, a sense of security, a sense of order, that 
survey shows that that's something that we want, not just with our finances, but with, with life in general. We want to feel like there's stability in our lives. And uh, that's one of the things that I love about Psalm 125. In Psalm 125, God promises that very thing to us. And we're going to look at that today. Because the reality is when we feel unstable, when we feel like we just don't know what's going to happen next and we're frantic, we may think what we're longing for is more stability, but ultimately what we're longing for is more of Christ. A deeper relationship with Christ, our King and our Redeemer. And so the, one of the things that I just love about this psalm is it teaches us that faith in Christ produces stability in our lives, even though we live in a very unstable world. So that'll be our focus for this morning, that through faith in Christ, we can have stability in our lives, even though we're in a very unstable world. And um, we're going to look at three things that we see in this psalm. Keep your Bibles open. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at a promise. There's an absolutely remarkable promise that God makes to us through verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, we're going to look at a problem. We're going to see what the Israelites were facing, what the psalmist is uh, pointing to in that psalm. And we actually share a very similar problem uh, in our day and age. And then Third, we'll see a prediction in verses 4 and 5, a prediction uh, about the future. And so let's uh, jump in here. Look first at verses 1 and 2, and let's talk about the promise. And this is just amazing here, because what we see here is this remarkable promise. And here's the promise. The more that we trust in the Lord, the more we put our trust in the Lord, the more stability we're going to experience in this life. That's the promise. The more we trust in Him, the more we're going to have that sense of stability that we long for. Here's how it's said in the psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Now let's unpack that a little bit because it's really quite amazing. He's he's promising us, God is promising us, we trust in Him, then we'll be like Mount Zion. Now, when the Israelites would have heard Mount Zion, remember, this is one of the songs of ascent. So they were actually singing this as they're walking up the Temple Mount, which is what he's referring to in Mount Zion. So they're walking up this mountain and they're singing about the fact that those who trust in the Lord are like this mountain. And when they thought of Mount Zion, when they thought of the Temple Mount, they would think stability and order and a sense of permanence. And so there's this incredible promise that as we trust more and more in the Lord, that's what happens. We can experience the stability that only the Lord can provide. Now, if you look at verse 2, it shows that it is the Lord that provides that stability. It's not us. Look at verse 2 again. He says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. And so this is still more geographic imagery. Not only are they walking up the Temple Mount, but then they're looking and they're seeing mountains all the way around Jerusalem. And as they're seeing that, they're not only realizing that through trust in the Lord they can have this stability, but also it's because God is with them. God is surrounding them. God is providing for them. God is protecting them. And so it's not them, just like it's not us, it's not we who provide our own stability, it's God. And that's a really remarkable promise. When we feel shaken in life, when we feel like we don't know what's going on, when we're feeling frantic, here's the promise. Trust in the Lord 
and will be like Mount Zion, stable. Now let's think about trust for a second because trust, the trust that the psalmist is talking about is not simply acknowledgement of the existence of God. He's talking about trust that is action-oriented. Trust meaning that we trust God Not only that he's good, but that his ways are good. That he's calling us to live in ways that will lead to his glory and ultimately to our joy as well. That's the kind of trust that he's talking about. Those who trust God and trust God's ways are the ones who will feel that stability. Because God's law, God's ways lead us to more stability in life because he designed life. He knows exactly how it's supposed to function. He knows what's truly true and what's truly good and what's truly beautiful. And so he leads us to those things when we trust him and apply his word in our lives. And so by corollary, we can say that if we don't feel very stable, if we feel like things are just out of control and we're frantic, then it may be that what we're missing is a deeper trust in the Lord. As we trust Him more and apply His Word more in our lives, then things will begin to stabilize. That's the promise. Not get easy, but stabilize. If we're feeling very unstable, we're missing the very thing that God has shown brings that stability. That's trust in Him. Um, Do you ever notice there's a fin on the bottom of sailboats? Has that been keeping you up at night? Me too. Um, I was reading about this Minneapolis native named Mike Plant who was a sailboat racer and he grew up racing sailboats, small sailboats on Lake Minnetonka. And then he became a world champion sailboat racer. And in 1992, he was sailing a boat. It was a $695,000 boat, 60-foot boat that he's sailing from New York to France where he's going to then race. But along the way, he runs into a lot of trouble And he sends out a distress signal. He says, I've lost control of the boat. I've lost control of the boat. And then that's the last they heard from him. Unfortunately, he was never heard from again. But they did find the boat, which was called the Coyote. They found the Coyote. Uh, 32 days later after, or 32 days after he had given that distress signal, they found the boat. It was upside down. Its 85-foot mast was straight down into the icy waters. And as soon as the authorities arrived there, they knew exactly what had happened. The keel had broken off. Okay, and that's that fin. So here's a little sailboat analogy, which I just learned this week. And here's how it works. On the bottom of the sailboat, there's this long fin. It's called the keel. And the keel either has in it or on it a massive amount of weight. And on the keel of the coyote was an 8,400-pound weight. And when they got there, the boat was flipped upside down and the keel had been broken off. So it was missing that weight. So they knew exactly what had happened. See, what that weight does is, as the boat shifts and turns with the weight, or with the waves, the weight there makes it come back up again. If it shifts this way, that weight makes the boat stable again in the water. And once that's gone, the wind and the waves are going to take over, and he's going to call out, I've lost control of the boat, and it's going to flip over. Because a sailboat cannot remain stable without its keel and without the ballast, the weight, to stabilize it. And this is what we need to understand about our relationship with the Lord. It is only when we are not only trusting Him as Savior, but also 
as Lord, as we trust Him and apply His ways in our lives, that life begins to stabilize. Without that trust in Him, we're going to be tossed by the waves. We're going to be frantic. We are not going to experience that beautiful stability that we're meant to have through our relationship with Christ. So when we are unstable, it's a perfect call from God to stabilize by putting more trust in Him, applying His Word to our lives in more area areas of our life. We need that ballast, and it's trusting Him that brings that about. But there's a problem, okay? So we, we want to recognize the problem that the Israelites had and the problem that we have too. Look at verse 3. Because we have to recognize what is one of the things that challenges us, that makes it hard for us to trust more in the Lord and apply more and more of His Word in our lives. Well, look at verse 3, and here's what we have to wrestle with. See, we face constant pressure from our culture to abandon God's righteous and stabilizing ways. We are always facing pressure from our culture to abandon God's ways, which through faith and through the working of the Holy Spirit are what brings that stability in our lives. Look at verse 3. He says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Here's what he's talking about. He's lamenting the fact that there's some foreign influence, foreign power that's influencing the people of Israel. And it could be any number of the times that Israel was attacked and uh, experiencing the different difficulties they had with the different surrounding nations. It's it's nonspecific. We don't know which one he's talking about. But he's referring to the fact that there's this foreign power. The scepter is uh, a metaphor for rule or influence. And what he's acknowledging is there's some ways in which this foreign power and therefore maybe the culture of that power is influencing God's people, so much so that they're tempted to do wrong. One author says, the psalmist is concerned that the wickedness will corrupt God's people. And that's something that we experience right now, right? The culture around us is constantly pressuring us to abandon God's ways and align ourselves with the culture. And what we have to recognize is, Through this psalm and other places, God is teaching us that when we feel instability in our life, it's very likely because there's an amount of worldliness that has made its way into our practice, into the way we do life with God. Worldliness, meaning we do things the way the world would do them, as opposed to the way God calls us to do them. Here's a definition of worldliness from David Wells. He says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's a really helpful definition. And it helps you and I to recognize that there's always pressure from the surrounding culture To see sin as normal and righteousness as strange. And it's all because our culture and all cultures in the world operate from a fallen human perspective. And fallen humanity 
does not really know what's really true, what's really good, what's really beautiful. And the only reason we can know those things is because God reveals those things to us. Like, that's a really huge thing for us to understand as, as Christians. The only reason we know what's really good or what's really true or what's really beautiful is because God reveals it to us. Otherwise, we would be as blind as anyone else. Graham Goldsworthy talks about this in his book, According to Plan. He says there's three ways that we should look at knowledge. How do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? Three ways. Number one, he says one way that people look at knowledge is uh, atheistic humanism. Atheistic humanism is the idea that human beings can figure everything out. All we need is time. We don't need any help from any divinity. We'll, we'll get this. We got this. That's atheistic humanism. The second way to look at how we can know things uh, he says it's theistic humanism. And that's the idea that we can figure out pretty much everything, but we need, we need some help from God. That's probably a good way to understand what's happening in, in the liberal church. Third, the third way to look at knowledge is Christian theism. And that's what Goldsworthy is arguing is the way that we have to, we must apply or we must look at knowledge. How do we know things? Christian theism is the belief that 100% of what we need to know about what's really true and good and beautiful needs to be revealed to us by God. Like we won't figure it out on our own. In fact, as we lean on our own understanding, we will be headed for disaster. As we lean on a fallen perspective, we will be headed for disaster. It's only when we let God tell us what's true in his word that we know what's really good and what's really beautiful, what will lead to his glory and to our joy. It's like the story on, uh, on July 10th, uh, 1989, uh, United Flight 232 left Denver, headed for Chicago. And uh, the first 10 minutes of the flight were pretty good. And then at 3.16 p.m., there was a big explosion. Boom. The, uh, it was a DC-10 and the rear engine exploded which is not a total deal-breaker because there are other engines on the plane, but it was a problem. It would, would always be a problem. In this case, it was a huge problem because it just so happened that when that rear engine exploded, shrapnel was sent through parts of the airplane and both the main and the backup hydraulic control lines were severed. And what that, the hydraulic control lines are what enable the pilot to adjust the flaps and the ailerons and move the rudders and basically control the airplane. And in literally what they think is maybe a one in a billion chance, it slices both the main hydraulics and the backup hydraulic lines. So they have zero control over this airplane. The the FAA called something like this a catastrophic failure. And interestingly enough, they don't train pilots for catastrophic failure. They don't train them what to do. Because you know what happens if a plane experiences catastrophic failure? It doesn't matter what you do. It's over. And so, as you might imagine, when they, they realize they're, they're moving the yoke, it's called. They're, they're, they're trying to steer this plane and nothing is happening. And they're panicking. And they're, they're, whatever they do, it doesn't matter. It's not helping at all. They have zero control over this airplane. Now, in God's amazing providence, there happened to be a man named Denny Fitch on that plane. And Denny Fitch got a hold of one of the flight attendants and he said, look, I've worked for United for many years. I actually teach pilots, especially I, tell, I, I teach them how to manage, how to manage mer- emergency situations. So ask the captain if he wants some help. <laughs> he said yes. 
And Danny comes up into the cockpit and he starts looking at the situation and he realized this is the worst thing ever. His first question was, how fast will Iowa hit us? And then he's realizing they don't know, they have no idea what to do. Everything they've tried has not helped one bit, but he has more knowledge than them. He's much more aware of what's really at stake here and how there's, if there's any possibility of getting through this. And he's able to start instructing them on what to do. And they begin to do something that has never been done. They fly a DC-10 without any hydraulic controls by uh, throttling different engines forward and back. And they're able, under his leadership, under his guidance, to actually steady the plane, turn the plane, and then come in for a landing. Now, when it came in for a landing, it was, come, it was dropping twice as fast as normal, and it was moving uh, at a rate that was just impossible to actually have a pleasant landing, as you might imagine. So it did actually, one of the wings tipped, and it spun, and it was kind of a fiery crash. But 185 people survived that plane crash, which the FAA dubbed, I think, technically, a miracle. Now, there's two moments to think about in that. Emergency. There's the moment when the captain and the co-captain or co-pilot are trying to do everything they can. They're trying to figure out anything they can, but nothing's working. Nothing is stabilizing this plane. Nothing is working. And then there's another moment when someone who actually knows what to do shows up. And that's the difference and why those people are alive. And see, you know, we... Praise God because he has sent his son to die on the cross, pay for our sins, so that through faith alone we can be reconciled to him. So he's sent us a savior, but he's also sent us a Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we don't want to align ourselves with the culture who does not know, does not understand how to live in ways that will lead to the flourishing of humanity. We want to look to Christ, who has not only redeemed us from the curse of the law, but then he also teaches us how we're meant to live. Yes, the law first drives us to Christ for salvation, but then it becomes our guide for how we're meant to live, for how we can live in ways that glorify God and do lead to our actual joy and flourishing. This is why... Jesus says, come to me, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Which is another way of saying, do life the way I teach you. And what happens? You will find rest for your souls. And so Jesus has saved us and now he's sanctifying us, he's teaching us through his word how to live in ways that really do lead to God's glory and our joy. And so we don't want to align ourselves with the culture. And man, it's thick, right? Like, think about all the ways, there's little ways and there's big ways that the culture is trying to pressure us to align ourselves with the culture and abandon the things that God has revealed. I mean, there's a long list of big things right now. We could look at the way the culture is pressuring us to abandon what God has revealed about the sanctity of human life. We could look at the way the culture is pressuring us to abandon what God has revealed about his design for marriage. We could look at the way the pressures cult- or the culture is pressuring us to abandon what God has revealed about the goodness of gender or human sexuality. 
Those are those big, huge topics, but there's even the smaller things like our daily lives, how we live our lives, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our children, how we go to work. All of these ways, if we operate according to blind, fallen humanity, it leads to disaster. But when we take Jesus' yoke upon us, that's when things change. That's when things transform. And that's when we experience that stability that we can have in Christ. So the promise is if we will trust God more and more, we will experience more stability in this life. And the problem is culture is constantly pressuring us to abandon God's stabilizing ways. So let's third look at the prediction. Look at the prediction in verse 4 and 5. Here's the prediction. This is actually pretty cut and dry. The prediction is this, that those who trust in the Lord will experience God's amazing blessing And those who choose to align themselves with the culture will eventually be removed for the sake of true peace or shalom. Look at verse 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Shalom be upon Israel is what he says there. And so if you think, if you look at verse 5, this is, this is a kind of a gut check moment, right? Because it's a prediction. What he's saying is that those who end up aligning themselves with the culture and abandoning God's ways are, are basically showing where their trust really lies. Their trust does not lie with God. It lies with themselves. It lies with the world. And so, as we see echoed in the New Testament, it says those will be led away. We see this in James 4, verse 4, where James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he's not saying we must hate people or hate the world. That's not what he's saying. But we're to be in the world, but not of it, right? We're to recognize the broken systems of the world and not align ourselves with that. If we do, we're aligning ourselves against the beautiful and stabilizing system of God. And this is an important gut check moment for everybody who calls themselves a Christian because the New Testament also has a clear teaching that there will be people who think they're Christians and then find out that they weren't. That they had really trusted in something else the whole time. Uh, we see this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, Jesus is not teaching there that we're saved by what we do, but what we do is a reflection of where our trust really is. And so he can say that they never knew him because they weren't living like they trusted him. That's hard, but that's a reality that we want to recognize. It's a prediction. And what that offers us is this moment where we can choose to align ourselves with God, to trust God and not the culture. 
Because what is he bringing about? Look what he says at the end there. Peace be upon Israel. That's shalom. He's doing this for the sake of shalom. What is shalom? It's not just the absence of war and struggle. It's the presence of real prosperity, real flourishing. And the psalmist knows that at some point, God's going to remove all those who are unwilling to trust him so that those who do can experience that real prosperity and shalom, that real flourishing. And so this is a moment to double down on our trust in God and to root out areas of worldliness and turn away and trust in God. And the the other side of that coin, though, is that when we do that, we will see God do good to us. Look again at verse 4. He says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about, from verse 1, those who trust in the Lord. And so there's this prediction as well that as we seek to live in God's ways, we're going to experience his goodness. We're going to experience that protection. We're going to experience that stability that he wants us to have in Christ. And so there's beautiful incentive for us to align ourselves more and more and more with God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and for our own joy to, to again, root out those areas of worldliness and focus on trusting God and applying His Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what's an example of this? Like One of the ways we can think through this is in parenting, right? We have a number of young families in our church, and it's amazing how often young families will talk about how they have no idea what they're doing in parenting. Okay, If you've ever felt like that, you are, what's the word, normal. Okay, It is an incredible challenge. But then at the same time, Often, we just try to figure it out. We just try to wing it when God has said a whole lot to us in his word about parenting. And pursuing what he says in his word about parenting changes the way you parent and then suddenly there's some stability that comes. And you see that he's true. That his prediction is true. That he will do good to us as we trust him. We can apply that in every area of our lives. In anywhere where we feel like there's instability, we root out the worldliness and, and trust God and do things His way and we experience things stabilizing. But it's not easy. It's never easy to trust God. Sometimes it's simple, but it's not easy. Ted Williams, baseball player, was asked one time, is it easy to hit a home run? And he said, easy, no. Simple, yes. Easy, No. It's hard. It takes a step of faith. It's letting go of something and clinging to God and His ways instead. I know you're probably all going to rush out and buy the 2019 Guinness Book of World Records. And when you do, I know the first thing you're going to look for is the oldest trapeze artist. Right? Well, I'm going to... Spoiler alert. Um, I'm going to tell you that in the 2019 Guinness Book of World Records... Uh, Betty Godhart is uh, the world's oldest trapeze artist. And you can read all about her when you pick up your copy. Um, Betty, when she was a very little girl, she went to the circus with her family and she was absolutely mesmerized by the trapeze artists. And she started saying to her family, I'm going to be a trapeze artist one day. And then she grew up into her teens and 20s and 30s and it just never came about that she had an opportunity to become a trapeze artist until... Late in life, a friend of hers gave her a gift certificate to a trapeze school. It's actually called the Trapeze High School. 
Okay, clever. Um, and they, and she, she went and she took some lessons, and sure enough, she eventually became a full-fledged, certified trapeze artist. And she is now the world's oldest trapeze artist at the age of 85. I mean, how cool is that? 85. She actually learned when she was 78. Okay? So no matter what, you've always got trapeze. Okay? <laughs> now here's, here's what's so remarkable about trapeze. When you, when you watch people do the trapeze, you generally see a moment of absolute pure trust. Because one of the artists is swinging and they generally turn backwards, right? And the other one is swinging, maybe from his knees. And at one moment, the one swinging backwards lets go entirely. And then is trusting that there will be the hands and arms of the partner. It's mesmerizing. And it's mesmerizing because it's such a picture of trust. And that's what God is calling us to. To let go of what often seems normal and trust that when we turn, He's there, surrounds us, grabs us, catches us, protects us, surrounds us like a mountain range. And so what area of life might God be saying to you, let go. So that you can see what it's like when He catches you. So that you can see what, he li- what it's like when He brings that stability. And you might say, well, but how can I trust Him? I mean, how can I really trust Him? And that's where it only is possible through looking at the cross. Because it is at the cross that we see God's commitment to be there when we need Him. And to be who we need Him to be. Because Jesus on the cross is died for our sins, was buried, was risen for our justification so that we can know that through faith we really truly are forgiven and free. And when we want to let go and cling to Him, we need only look at the cross for that reminder of the guarantee God is always exactly where we need Him to be. And so let's look at the cross and let go and grab onto Him and experience the beauty of the stability that we can only have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the way that You love us and are patient with us. Lord, I pray if there are any here who are unsure as to where they stand with You, perhaps because of a recognition of their alignment with more of the culture than your word. Lord, would you lovingly and gently yet clearly call them to yourself now? Would you, Lord, help them look to the cross to see that you are where we need you to be at all times? Would you let them see in the resurrection the proof that everything 
you have done, that everything Christ has done for us has paid our debt. Would you give them strength now to trust in the Lord and be like Mount Zion? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.